name is Daniel, and I am an anthropology student at Cal State San Marcos. I'm here today with my two co-hosts. Wyatt. And Joe. We're going to be discussing the life, career, and the overall achievements of the anthropologist Ralph Linton. To begin the early life of Ralph Linton, we have to start in 1893, February 27th, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, essentially, he was raised in a really religious household. His parents were Quakers, so he was brought up that way. Um, everything was super traditional. It was super religious. Uh, that was a big driving force in the way that he was brought up. So after he was getting through high school, he joined Swarthmore College in 1911. He was greatly influenced there by a teacher named Spence Trotter. This teacher was a teacher of general science, and you can tell by the rest of the time that Ralph was going through his education and into his work as well. Uh, Spence Trotter really played a very prominent role in the way that Ralph Linton went about his work. He developed an interest in archaeology based on the things that he learned from Spence Trotter and a mix of you know, life experience throughout college and high school as well. And then he continued to conduct anthropological research later on into his career. Ralph Linton actually earned a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania and then was admitted to a PhD program at the Columbia University to study anthropology. However, he had developed kind of a rivalry with Franz Boas, which compelled him to transfer to Harvard. After this, he ended up serving as a corporal in the U.S. Army in World War I and experienced firsthand the German gas attacks. After the war, he later shifted his interest from archaeology more towards cultural anthropology, where he worked as a curator of American Indian materials. In 1928, at the University of Wisconsin, he assumed a position at Madison's Department of Sociology. Afterwards here, we see Ralph Linton return to Columbia University in, in 1937 as the head of the anthropology department. It was actually contested by a lot of the students there because uh, a lot of the students that had taken Franz Boas's classes and were close with him because of the rivalry actually weren't a big fan of his indictment. Um, but nonetheless, he was the department chair. Um, after that, he was greatly involved in World War II. And after World War II, Ralph Linton had moved to Yale University as a teacher and from, 19, and from 1946 to 1953, he taught there. Ralph Linton died on December 24th of 1953, after a long life of anthropological and archaeological research. So with that all kind of uh, out of the way, um, I'd like to actually circle back to Ralph Linton's experience in, in World War I, because I think this is the moment where he not only changes as an anthropologist, but as a person. Um, he We see and we notice that there's a, redirection of his focus from archaeology to cultural anthropology. He even begins to work on uh, totemism and military symbols. And obviously the war has had a very big impact on his person and his direction of, of work. And what's actually interesting too, and to add on to what you're saying, I think what a lot of people discount and something that's super important to note here is Ralph Linton not excluded. When people go off to war and they experience the things that they do, you come back a drastically changed person. And I think that's a lot of what we're getting here with Ralph Linton is that you see him kind of down this very staunch patch pass where he knows exactly what he wants to do. He's kind of heading that direction. And then he comes back from this war and all of a sudden he has really different ideas about uh, you know what he wants to do with his life and the things that he wants to pursue. So I think that that's really interesting. And, and I think it says a lot about you know, the experience of war and what it can do to you. 
And a big thing, too, is that we forget a lot about World War One, especially, is this is the first war in which they used chemical warfare, in which mechanized warfare became the regular. So these were soldiers that were experiencing things never before seen by mankind and yeah. humankind. Yeah. So they didn't even know how to process that. Yeah. I mean, the modern issue of PTSD, or as we used to call it, shell-shocked, came from this war. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's also uh, something interesting is that he didn't really have to do this. He actually enlisted, and he already had a master's uh, degree, and he was working towards his PhD, but he actually enlisted. Um, and, you know, I would like to address also his rivalry with uh, Franz Boas, because um, Franz Boas was more of a pacifist and whatnot. But uh, interestingly, Linton has shown or did show these kind of nationalistic uh, tendencies. You know, something that's really interesting about that, and I I think you can kind of contribute it to his combat experience, I think when he went off to the war, and obviously there's nuance to it, it's not the same for everybody, but I think in his particular circumstance, when he went off to war, he kind of adopted these kind of, what you're talking about, these nationalistic Mm -hmm. ideals, because when you're fighting in, you know, a global conflict like he was, I think it can kind of influence you in that way. Um, but yeah, going back to what you were saying, I'll let you continue. I just wanted to yeah, say no, that. I I just uh, like I was saying these these nationalistic tendencies that uh, we wouldn't really necessarily expect from an anthropologist then or even now, especially. But uh, I'd like to say that that didn't really stop him from you know being unbiased and being a good anthropologist and and really focusing on his work and separating any sort of baggage from his his academic career and his anthropological career. Um, in fact, he promoted a you know this greater understanding for cultures and multiculturalism, and uh, I wanted to bring up this uh, article from from Linton called uh, "100% American." It was uh, he wrote it in 1937, and uh, in this short expert from Linton's work, he connected uh, all the aspects of the American way of life to its point of origin, essentially. And he, he points out that much of what an American does, eats, dresses, and basically is essentially everything, all have their traces to somewhere else, another culture, another time period, you know, other people's history. And uh, Linton challenges this idea of being an American, but also recognizes how humans and societies adapt and integrate things from other societies. And may, I you know, was thinking maybe this is part of his nationalistic uh, ideas because not only was he promoting multiculturalism, but he was also promoting being an American. And you, when you think about it, America has been uh, and, and is a kind of a melting pot of all these, these cultures and, and peoples, uh, even with all of its flaws. And I think that's such an interesting point too. And it kind of, it kind of all ties back to the things that we've been talking about in class. Um, I think with a guy like Ralph Linton, you know, you wonder to yourself, was he able to separate his work from his personal life, his personal opinions from his work opinions? Um, from what I can gather, it seems like he did a decent job of leaving his baggage behind and trying to be like, okay, I'm an anthropologist. How can I look at this from a worldview instead of looking at this from my view? Um, so I think that that's a really interesting thing to take a look at and understand that, like, maybe it is possible for people to at least leave a majority of their baggage behind when they bring these things to the table because we see that with Ralph's work. And building off that idea of leaving your baggage behind, we saw in one of Ralph's work, Primitive Art, in the Kenyan Review, he not only leaves that baggage, but he also directly challenges the idea of Eurocentrism and American centrism and what it means to have this quote-unquote Western worldview in an entire field dedicating to studying and understanding and categorizing the non-Western world. 
which in itself is already a very difficult thing to do, let alone if you have that inherent bias. So I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and kind of get back to that idea of the beef between Franz Boas and Ralph Linton. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I look at it, it kind of contributes into all that we've been talking about with the holistic views versus the nationalistic views. Um, I look at Franz Boas like he's the type of guy who would have those very holistic views while Ralph Linton kind of goes the different direction. Um, so I, I see it more as that would be the main, you know, catalyst as to why they have such problems with each other because they're, you know, their worldviews really differ in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think part of it has to do with maybe the separation between anthropological study and personal perspectives. Obviously, Franz Boas had his own personal, you know, perspectives and baggage that he separated from his anthropological work and Ralph Linton did the same thing and what's interesting is that these are completely two opposing people and especially with Ralph Linton is we see someone who's has these tendencies to be a little more nationalistic which we have this connotation that you know goes against uh, like a holistic view or a greater understanding of cultures and a greater appreciation of the cultural diversity but uh, we don't actually see that from Linton. We actually see the opposite, where he, he separates his work and he focuses on enriching you know, everyone, everyone's knowledge, and, and really elevating all these different cultures. And I think that's something that makes Rolf Linton himself just a fascinating person and an enigma of a person, because as my co-host said, he did care so much about all the different people living not only in North America, but around the world. And we saw this with some of his work where he was studying the thunder ceremony of the Pawnee people in the Midwest and their many different subtribes. We also saw us when he was doing farther work or work farther in his future with the Malagasy cultures and Malagasy tribes in North America. So I feel like we've done a pretty good job discussing kind of what formulated Ralph Linton's life and what led him to, you know, his major works. Mm-hmm. I'd really love to get into the topic of the study of man and kind of, you know, what that book did, what it said, and what the significance was. Yeah, so uh, in Linton's book, The Study of Man, he, he kind of exhorts his concern about reshaping and reorganizing society. And uh, this concern was, was fueled by the First World War and its destruction, not only in Europe, but globally. Um, so, unfortunately, Linton didn't provide any answer to how this should be done or may be done. But uh, he does, however, express the need for change in anthropological approaches in, in studying cultures. So the book kind of infuses anthropology, sociology, and psychology in a greater effort to better understand culture, society, and human behavior. And I think kind of going off of that, too, with the human behavior argument... Um, He also did a lot of talking about individual experiences and how they shape those individuals to manifest themselves in the overarching world. Um, He put a lot of emphasis on individual behavior. So, you know, depending on how you grow up, depending on the environment that you're in, um, it really dictates how you're going to be as an adult or how you're going to be later on in your life. The choices that you're going to make, that kind of stuff. That line of thinking is actually it, it really helped today to develop some of our psychological principles that, you know, we see manifest themselves in, in different practices today. And kind of building off both those ideas, it might be a bit of a far reach here, but we can arguably safely assume that Linton's approach to solving this problem would be to focus on those people, focus on the individual and how those separate like those individual groups work together to make a whole. We saw this in some of his later work close to the end of his life. Yeah, I'd like to mention here in uh, Ralph Linton's Culture, Society, and the Individual, he actually argued that uh, no one really knows the entirety of their culture. 
and rather they are more familiar with and more influenced by a particular part of their culture within the grander you know, culture or grander society. Mm-hmm. And these are actually can be categorized, categorized by things like age, gender, sex. And as one generation passes, it passes on the necessary tools to continue, continue society and not so much the actual culture. And that kind of has also to do with like this individual um, transformation. And I think kind of tying that back to one of the points that you made earlier about America being a melting pot, too. I think that's why we see that America has so many cultures that kind of mesh together to make one larger culture. Mm -hmm. But what that's a result of is exactly what you're talking about, how through the generations, things have kind of been passed down generation to generation to generation, where at a certain point, because we're all, you know, assimilating the information amongst one another, kind of sharing ideas, sharing culture, sharing food, music, all that kind of stuff, it kind of launches itself together into one large, you know, to use the term again, but melting pot. And then we all get together and, you know, collectively create this culture that we have within our country. And I think that's a lot of ideas that he touched on in in several of his novels. And it does kind of bring up a question of how much was he influenced by his time in Europe during World War One, where he would have experienced and seen entire European cultures and societies that are very heterogeneous in nature. Is you have your French culture, you have your British culture, you have your German culture. But then when he came back to the States, there wasn't a really a unified American culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Each part of this country had a different culture that was predominantly decided on by those that lived in it. Something that he might not have noticed without that outside eye. And what's so interesting about that, too, is that you'd think that, and obviously it's more of a World War II rather than a World War One, but by seeing the Germans and how they rose to power with their nationalistic ideas, you'd think that would have a different influence on the way that he felt nationalistically. Um, but it still is interesting that he incorporates a lot of that into his work, even though he had seen just how far that can take you down a dark road with what the Germans had done, um, you know, during World War II era. But I think in a lot of ways, he incorporated some of those ideas, but he drastically changed the implications of them um, and how he implemented it in his work. I just th- I, I do think it's interesting, though, that like, how could you see something like that, but then, you know, incorporate a lot of that into your work? Yeah. And I think maybe part of that nationalistic uh tendency and that those perspectives and views was because America was this melting pot. I'm sorry, like to use the term again, but uh, America is, you know, influenced by all these different peoples and all these different cultures and all these different societies. And maybe that's where he, you know, as an anthropologist, obviously, you know, studying anthropology myself, I absolutely love learning about all these people and all these cultures and all these societies and all these different aspects of being of humanity. And maybe that's why he had those, those kind of nationalistic tendencies because obviously America is that one of those countries in the world and that is able to bring together so many different people. I agree. Yeah. And I think in that same vein too, there's probably a deeper part of him that really wanted to see, you know, America united, um, America brought together. And he that's why he was so passionate about those issues. I think he just wanted to see that same, you know, nationalism where people get excited about having an American culture. I do want to circle back to something that Joe said earlier about the idea of how nationalism, it was shocking that he still believed in that seeing the eventual rise of the German powerhouse going into World War II. I think a big thing there is, without getting to the whole morality of Mm -hmm. it all, Mm -hmm. many Americans during that time period didn't really have an issue with Germany. It was more so the League of Nations and Mm -hmm. the way they treated Germany. And then by the time America realized what was going on, we were already too far out of it. Mm -hmm. Because it's easy to forget that World War I wasn't started by the Germans. It was primarily fought by them. 
So I wonder if later in his life, as he gets closer to World War II, and he starts to see the dangers of what nationalism and jingoism could actually do to a society, if it starts to shift away from that. Mm. Yeah. And so I, I kind of want to get into a little bit of his uh, his work, at least with uh, World War II, and his um, participation, at least in the strategic planning of the occupation uh, of Europe by the Allied forces, obviously to help facilitate you know, the steps needed to be taken to ensure a peaceful occupation. Obviously, when you're dealing with you know, any sort of occupation, we have to take into account the, the population there and their differences in cultures and, and society. And you know, obviously, coming towards the end of the war, you need to make sure that everything is adjusted correctly for those types of things. And it kind of reminds me a little bit about um, in more recent times, like Afghanistan, for example, and uh, it makes me question whether, you know, the, the results that we had, the, what ended up happening would have been different had there been more, you know, involvement maybe by anthropologists and people who understand uh, these different cultures and, and how, you know, we can't generalize an entire region to, to one thing and that there's so many different cultures within that that, uh, you know, obviously an anthropologist would play a, a huge role in, in warfare and occupation and, and stuff like that. Yeah, building off of that is we're talking about cultures here that are thousands of years old in some cases. So there are entire collectives of people that historically do not get along with one another that are forced to be together because us as outsiders, without our knowledge, force them together, for like a better term. Mm -hmm. And really things that we see as being helpful or as being kind or as being kind-spirited can come off as offensive, rude, or just completely misunderstanding the culture. And I think, too, that really attributes to the relevance of his work in a lot of ways, because I think now, especially I've seen, you know, ads out for jobs in the Army, Navy and Marines for anthropologists to come in and work for them. Um, So I really think that there's a push now more than ever to have anthropologists on the team, to have anthropologists in positions like HR, um, where you can really have somebody who understands culture and who, you know, wants to make an effort to have that holistic mindset, wants to make an effort to have everybody feel included and make sure everybody has like has a voice in the workspace. Um, so to your credit and to your credit, talking about militarily, I think it's so important because when you're talking about an issue as big as conflict, you need people there that have this cultural understanding. And I, I think it's unfortunate, you know, in the first place to have any sort of warfare and, you know, everything that comes along with it. But uh, if what it's bound to happen and, and it happens and I think if you have the correct people on the team to ensure that uh, you know certain things don't happen and, and everything follows these correct steps where we recognize these differences in cultures and whatnot is important to at least exist and occur yeah because you can very much minimize the damage because there will be damage like you said sadly it's for lack of a better saying it's human nature to have conflict so to minimize the amount of damage from it is important But I also want to point out something that you mentioned, Joe, with the idea of the global and the world as a whole. Even outside of military, we are seeing a much bigger push for anthropologists in every facet of life. Because 50, 60 years ago, anthropologists were studying the exotic other. Mm. But today, with the way the world is connected, we're effectively studying our neighbors. So now more than ever, the average person is trying to and needs to understand those that aren't like us. Mm -hmm. So moving into the next section, I'd really like to talk a tiny bit about the Tree of Culture novel. Um, Basically, in this novel, it it has so much relevance towards today because he defines the distinction between status and role. 
Um, he talks about status as being a relative social positioning of an individual, while the role is the particular niche that that person fills. Um, essentially, he's advancing the idea of status personalities within communities um, and that within each individual niche, there's certain social hierarchies that kind of play a role and, and give pertinence to what's going on in that particular uh, you know, workplace or that particular environment and that kind of stuff. He's also influential on the ideas of alculturation, which means the assimilation to a different culture. So he's basically introducing all these kind of ideas that we still see very prevalently today about, um, you know, just individuals filling these particular roles and kind of manifesting themselves within the roles and kind of, you know, changing it to fit themselves, but also finding their own individual place within these places that they are. Yeah, um, there's just, you know, one thing I like to point out, and people have critiqued this, and I'll this, uh, this comes from the Sociological Quarterly by Irving Follader. Um, and it was just a clarification, really, of a scribe status and chief status. And um, Follader pointed out the, the inconsistency that arises when trying to determine where a role should be placed in Linton's theory of a scribed status or a chief status. And, you know, obviously there's, like, different, you know, crossovers and things that makes it kind of like, okay, his, his theories were too set in stone, but uh, either way, his work has really, you know, elevated this, you know, way of thinking and, and this approach to people and their statuses. And circling back to an article that I was discussing earlier during this roundtable, and that also came out in the later part of Linton's career, which was Primitive Art in the Kenyan Review. Linton discusses the, like, the more intricate and intricacies of primitive, well, quote-unquote primitive art compared to the European and American counterparts in which he finds that they are just as detailed and they are a collective intelligence of both the community's physical skill set and mental skill set. And this idea of the primitive versus the civilized and how that viewpoint in itself is flawed is very reminiscent of postmodernism, which we see happen about 20 or so years after Linton's untimely passing. Well, and he definitely has influence over postmodernism in a lot of ways, because I think a lot of what he's saying also directly contributes to the idea of being against unilineal evolution. In a lot of ways, I think it's funny because, you know, as we talked about earlier, Franz Boas was somebody that vehemently opposed unilineal evolution as an idea. And Ralph Linton now is discussing a lot of the same ideas. So it's funny to me that they butted heads so often when when it really is broken down to its bare bones, they actually agreed on a lot of major points. I think that, you know, something just got lost in translation there. So to kind of surmise the application and relevance of Ralph Linton's work, um, initially, I really want to talk about the fact that he opened anthropology up to, you know, regular people. His work was something that was easily readable by both specialists and laymen. So people who were new to the field, people who were experts in the field, everybody could kind of get on board with what he was saying and, you know, make connections and re relate to his work in a lot of ways. Um, but the most important thing to me is the idea that he promoted the understanding of different cultures and multiculturalism. Yeah, and, and I think it's, you know, not to keep repeating it, but I think it's important to recognize that, uh, you know, although Ralph Linton, you know, being an anthropologist and being as a person was completely opposed and opposite of the father of anthropology, Franz Boas, right? Um, you know, from their different perspectives and their different ideologies, it, that never stopped him from approaching anthropology uh, from an, an academic, a holistic, and a professional way. And all of his work really has shown that, uh, you know, 
you can leave behind that baggage, if you can leave behind that those those things and, and approach anthropology the right way, you can really make a big difference and, and a big change to not only anthropology, but the whole world.